And again, let me just welcome all of you. And, and, and if you somehow miss the food over here, we've got some snacks, some light snacks. And feel free to grab something. Uh, get up and go over and grab what you need. And there's also some coffee in the back. And there's, there's, there's uh, water. And yeah, just help yourself. Uh, this is a very relaxed. I, I, don't you love the tables? We're able to just kind of stretch out and relax a little bit. And if you take notes, you got a place to write. And, and that's a blessing. Uh, I'm so thankful. I, I, every time I come in the building, I'm just thankful for the Church of Christ and the graciousness that they have shown us to allow us to use their facility. And uh, so what a blessing. By the way, this uh, Palm Sunday, uh, not this year, but also Good Friday will be here in the courtyard. We're going to try and hold it. in. Every year we try to go outside with Good Friday service. And every year it seems like it rains or something. So but we're not going to quit. We're going we're gonna to defeat that thing and have an outdoor uh, Good Friday in the evening right before dusk. It'll be a beautiful service. Uh, but tonight, uh, let's, we're going to get in the Word. Let's start with prayer. Father, as we come before you this evening, I'm reminded, Jesus, how you taught us to pray. You, you said, when you pray, pray in this manner. It wasn't a command. It's not like it's a legalistic, this is how you do it. But you did give us some framing. It was a framework. And you started the prayer with exalting God, the Father. You, you, you made it very clear. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every part of that opening prayer was about God, not about us. And so tonight we begin the same. We are so thankful for the character, the nature that you possess that allowed you in, in your love to reach out into to this world and seek and save lost people. And we were the ones that were lost. And we just are so appreciative, so thankful. And, and yet you didn't just save us, but you gave us the Holy Spirit as a promise, a pledge that we will be in eternity with you. And you, you gave the Holy Spirit assignments. One of them was to teach us all things pertaining to truth. Another was to help us remember the things that Jesus said. So we're very thankful that if we know the truth, the Bible says the truth will set us free. Tonight, Lord, free us by the Word of God. May we come into greater understanding, greater knowledge, and may it be a subjective work where the Holy Spirit speaks individually, not just corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the summary of chapter 9 in 2 Kings, and we, you know, we started, what, what did we start with? 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, now we're in 2 Kings. When we finish 2 Kings, I don't know where we're going. Uh, if you have any suggestions, throw them my way. Let me know what you think. What would you like to study? Um, I do like to do Old Testament on Wednesday night because predominantly we're in the New Testament on Sunday morning. If we happen to do an, an Old Testament book on Sunday morning, then we'll probably do a, a, a New Testament book on Wednesday night. But right now, chapter 9, the summary of this chapter is that Jehu is anointed and declared king. And what we're going to see in this chapter is God as avenger. God Almighty becomes the avenger of those who died at the hands of the Omri dynasty. That would be King Ahab and Jezebel. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. By the way, is it cool in here? Can we turn the air up a little bit, Richard? Thank you. It is cold. I'm, I'm a little chilled. Okay, so tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord. I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. 
Do not linger. Do not linger. Now, we don't know who this young man is whom Elisha sent to anoint Jehu. He is one of the sons of the prophets. You know, remember, Elisha started a school after Elijah passed on the, the mantle to Elisha. And uh, remember the story of them, the, the young prophets were going to build this building. Um, uh, it was going to be a, a school for prophets. And the axe head flew off one of the handles of one of the young men's axe, and it was a borrowed axe, and he was all worried about it. And I'm not gonna, how am I going to pay back for the axe? And Elisha walked over and said, where did you lose it? And he told him specifically in the water, and he took a stick and threw it in the water at that spot, and the axe head floated to the surface, and he was able to recover it. So this is one of those young prophets. And for some reason, it's not Elisha who's going to anoint this king. He's going to send a, a young man to do it. Probably one of the better young men in the, in the school. You know, he's, he's proven himself. Maybe this is a test that, that, that uh, Elisha is putting on the young man. Now, we don't know who this young man is. Uh, we, we just don't know. But Jewish tradition, there's a, there's a work uh, in, among the Jews in their tradition called the Seder uh, Olam. And it tells us that this young prophet is identified with Jonah. With Jonah. In fact, if you want to turn there real quick, I'll just show you. 2 Kings chapter 14, just five chapters over. 2 Kings 14, verse 25. It says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. Look here which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So here we see this young man is somehow connected to Jonah. So these young men are being trained for active duty as prophets, and this is the guy that God sends. And uh, so he arrives in Samaria, and he anoints Jehu with oil, as Elisha told him to do. And by the way, the anointing with oil, olive oil, by a prophet was a way of confirming that God is giving authority to someone, the one that's being anointed. It wasn't common that all kings were anointed. You might think it was, but it wasn't. However, uh, Solomon, David... Saul, they were anointed. Why? Anointing was done when it was a special calling. Maybe it was a time when there was disruptive uh, uh, things happening in the life of the people. They didn't know where to turn. They didn't know who to trust. So to reinforce that God was speaking through one person, He would send the prophet to anoint that individual. And that is the case with David and, and uh, Saul and with Solomon. The, Saul, or Saul being the first king, so we can understand the anointing for him. David being raised up in a time of turmoil when Saul's trying to take his life. And for the people to understand, no, God is, he is giving David the future kingdom. And so just to explain that a little bit for you. So after completing this assignment, the young prophet flees. Remember, that's what he said. He said, as soon as, you, as soon as you anoint the king of Israel, then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So uh, that's the specific word that, uh, that uh, Elisha gave him. Now, uh, why would he need to flee? Anybody want to take a stab at that? I'm, I'm throwing it out for your, your discussion. Why would he need to flee immediately after anointing the king, or the next king? Okay, obviously there's some danger. Okay, you're, I think you're right. I think, Maureen, that's exactly correct. Uh, remember now, he has gone because who is Jehu? Jehu was the commander of the Israeli army under King Ahab. So he is a commander. He is with his soldiers. This, there's probably a company of soldiers. And, and I believe the reason uh, Elisha told him to flee immediately was because it's possible that there were some soldiers on the periphery that were there 
who were sympathizers with the current king, Jehoram. God is sending for a new king to be anointed while another king sits on the throne. And if that boy stayed and lingered, it's possible that those who were sympathizers with the other king might pick up on the fact that a coup is taking place. So this is what one of the commentaries uh, uh, came to, that they really believe this was the case. We don't know for sure, but uh, it makes sense to me. It sounds like it would make sense. So the specific word from the Lord to Jehu through the prophet was, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Now, by the way, this is the only northern king, Jehu, who was anointed. No other king in the north during the divided kingdom was ever anointed. Why? Because God, while He did raise up certain kings, it was not a special calling. This is a special calling, and you're going to see how it plays out and why it's so important. I think what I want to say to you tonight, just as an overview before we get into this, do you ever feel like there are people on this earth who are getting away with, not murder, but getting away with wickedness in a, in a very real way? And it seems like nothing bad happens to them. They get more and more. They live a life of freedom and, and uh, uh, pleasure, and they just never have to pay for their sins. And, and, and it feels that way. Well, the Bible in numerous scriptures addresses that fact. And the Bible, in one passage in particular, says, your sins will find you out. God does not forget those who sin unrepentantly. And that's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see God who becomes the avenger. He's going to bring justice to the house of the dynasty of Omri, which was Ahab and Jezebel, and their, and their son Jehoram, who was now sitting on the throne. This is a very important, important uh, chapter. Now, it was the prophet Elijah, not Elisha, who sent the young man to Jehu to anoint him. The, the prophet before Elisha, Elijah, who, get this, uh, who God first told that Jehoram uh, would be the anointed king of Israel. So God was in the works way back when Elijah was the prophet to raise up Jehoram, Ahab's son. Okay? And then Jehu, he also was in the fact that he told Elijah, you're going to go and you're going to anoint Jehu. Interesting. Now we see Jehu being anointed. Here's the point. God is always out in front of us. God always has a plan. When you can't see light at the end of the tunnel, when you feel like all hope is lost, I'm telling you, God is sovereign and He is providential. Never is God caught off guard, and God's plans will prevail over the plans of men. So if you want the story, it's back when Elijah had just slain 450 prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. Remember that? What a powerful day. He was so pumped up in the spirit that he, he tucked his coat in his cloak and he, or his belt and he ran down the mountain and beat King Ahab who was in a chariot. He ran so fast. Elijah. He was so pumped. Well, then he gets to the bottom of the mountain and word comes to him that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, just learned that you slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal. Of course, she's the one that raised up the prophets of Baal in the land of Israel, in, the, in Samaria. So uh, she put out a decree, by this time tomorrow, Elijah will be dead, like the prophets that he slayed. What did Elijah do? All of a sudden, he's got all this, this power, this sense of, of, of excitement and unction by the Spirit, and all of a sudden, Fear completely grips him, and he runs to the wilderness. And he, he ends up going into a cave. He first stops under a juniper bush. God ministers to him there with a rock for him to lay his head on, gives him some food. He goes into a cave, and God shows up. First of all, before God speaks, there's a hurricane, like a hurricane wind. There's all kinds of 
and God wasn't in any of the big things. And all of a sudden, this voice speaks, and it's God. And he says, why are you here? And Elijah gave a sad tale. Oh, God, if you only knew that I'm the last one that hasn't bowed down to Baal. <laughs> here he is. Okay, we do the same. Look, we shouldn't laugh at him. We do the same thing. Have you ever found yourself in prayer where you're praying and you're kind of like trying to help God understand the situation? Because I'm sure he doesn't know everything. So I'm going to help him out here tonight. And the Lord, if you'll listen good, you're going to get this. And then I'm going to even give you some instructions that I think will work. Okay, let me tell you what that's like. That's like you and I going into this room where there's no moon at night and there's no lights on and it is completely dark. You can't see your hand here. And us walking around in the room, not seeing anything, but then God, who is above us, who is not diminished by darkness in the least, and us looking up to heaven and going, God, if you just listen to what I'm saying, I'm telling you, I can, we can figure this thing out. I've got a plan. God sees everything. He doesn't need your help. Amen? He just doesn't. What he needs you to do is be quiet and listen and pray. Let him speak. That's why the theme song of our church among the elders is that we want to join God in His work. And don't think for a second that our future facility team and our finance team aren't working diligently to try and find a property for us. We believe God wants us to have a, a permanent home. I don't have any doubt in my mind that God wants to, us to have that. And in His timing, He'll provide it. And so our finance team, our future facility team, the elders, we are waiting patiently on the Lord. But i got to tell you, there's moments where I'm like, man, Lord, uh, how about now? This looks like a really good time right now, you know? And uh, for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. So what do we do? We wait. One of the hardest things for Christians to do of any era, of any generation, to learn how to wait on the Lord. We're so conditioned to get out in front of him, tell him what the vision is, and ask him to bless it. And he's like, uh, I think I'm the visionary. I just need you to obey what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. I had a person when I was a young pastor, and I was burning the candle because I was working. I was putting in the time. I was going to make it happen. And the Lord took me to the woodshed, and he said, this isn't your church. I'm the one that raised you up, and I can take you out. This is my church. I don't need you to set the, the, the sail. I need you to simply follow, put your hand on the rudder, and where I tell you to turn it, you turn it. And when I'm not speaking, you keep quiet and just keep going the direction you're going. He really laid, me, laid into me. And I remember I shared that in a Sunday morning service with the body. And it was, a, it was good for all of us to hear that because we, you know, we all have a tendency to get ahead of him. And one of the young men in the church who was a carpenter, he was a Finnish carpenter, very good carpenter, and he came to my office a few weeks later, and he walked in, and he had a sign, a wooden sign that he made, beautiful. And he had engraved on it, it said, I have just enough time each day to do God's will. Wow, what a treasure. And I hung that thing right in my office where I could see it, above my door, walking out. Okay, whatever you're getting ready to go do, you have just enough time to do God's will, not your will. And God's will does include blessing us and helping us. God's will includes taking care of our families and being good to our spouses, right? So God's will covers everything. So I just thought that was really interesting. And, and so, so here we are. On the surface, this looks like a big mistake because Elijah, you know, he's out in the wilderness, and then God comes to him. I want you to see what, what God says to Elijah, okay? So if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll just read it for you. It's, it's going to be 1 Kings chapter 19. Again, Elijah's given this, he's just told this sad tale, singing a song of sorrow about how he's the only one left, and blah, 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 and my ministry's over. Lord, why don't you just take me home? It's, it's been a good run, but man, and so look what God says. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel, or Haziel to be king over Syria. 
Now, why would God care about the Syrian king? Because God's getting ready to bring judgment against Israel for their, for their sinfulness. God's even controlling the pieces on the board that aren't even part of Israel to, 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 to punish Israel. Verse 16, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. There it is. And what we're reading in chapter 9 of 2 Kings is actually Jehu being anointed. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Elijah wasn't just cruising along in his, in his, uh, in his little chariot there, and he comes up on, on a boy out in the field working with oxen and say, hey, why don't you follow me? Let me throw my mantle down. You can pick it up, and, you, and I'll, I'm, I'll put you in my school of prophets. He didn't do that. God told him to go to Elijah. See, God orders up everything. We've got to get that through our thick craniums. God is in control. God knows what He's doing. And let me just say this to you. You're not going to, this is going to be two words you've never put together before, but it's, it's biblically accurate. God also specializes in bitter providence. Wouldn't it be nice if all providence was just fun and easy and pleasurable? That's not the case. Was it pleasurable for David to be chased down by Saul? Yet that was the providence of God. It was a bitter providence. The Bible's filled with bitter, but God's still in control. And just because bad things are happening doesn't mean God's, God's throwing His arms up going, well, I guess I, oh man, I blew that. Sorry. It means He's got a plan. And you need to keep your eyes on Him. Don't ever take your eyes off of Him. Okay, so now we move on. Let's, let's keep moving here. And so, uh, verse 7, And you shall strike down the house... Now we're going back to our text in, in 2 Kings 9. This is God, and, uh, and uh, he, He's really into this thing. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge. This is actually what He's saying to Elisha. I'm sorry, this is Elijah. Elisha. And this is the young prophet delivering the message. And this is Elisha speaking to him. Uh, down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants and prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off the Ahab, cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So this is what, okay, this is what God gave this young man when he appeared before this king that he's anointing. Now, if you go back earlier in the chapter, Elijah didn't, Elisha didn't say these things to him. He said, you walk in and say, you're going to be the next king of Israel, anoint him, and then get out of there. But now, all of a sudden, he's saying all these other things. Why? Because God spoke to him. He's a young prophet. It's not that he disobeyed Elijah, but God in the moment gave him a word to give to Jehu. God's letting Jehu know, you're a commander, you have a background in killing, and I'm coming to you, and you're going to be the next king, and I even told Elijah way back you were going to be the king, and now you're going to go out, and you're going to, I'm going to show that I am the avenger of the innocent. So... This is a very interesting uh, situation. Um, this is a very strong word, a strong word that this young man gives to, the, to this new king. Uh, that God is avenging the death of those who were killed at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel. It looked like she was getting away with it because she's still living. Ahab's dead, but she's still alive. And she's living like a queen. And, uh, but the, the, the graphic, the explicit language here is very interesting. Now, in the King James Version, verse 8 says this, okay? It says, And I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. <laughs> That's King James, man, going PG-13. But here's the deal. Let me tell you what it means, because I had to do a little literal translation on this. That phrase of pissing on the wall is speaks of a male. That's all it means, is speaking of a male. And so, so uh, when Jehu came out of the, servant, the servants of his master, 
they said to him, so now Jehu walks out after being anointed. The young man has fled, and he walks out, and now he's got all of his troops. And they said, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? That's interesting. They see the prophet, the young prophet, and they think he's mad. He's crazy. And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So when they first saw this young man, they're like, oh, what a knucklehead. This guy's crazy, you know, he's, he's kind of out of his head. But then when the Jehu spoke, they realized, no, this is God's man. He spoke the word of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. The prophets were some pretty weird dudes. They looked weird. They acted different. I mean, go no further than John the Baptist, eating bugs, living off of honey, dressed in burlap sacks. I mean, weird, but God's man. Now, isn't that interesting? You'd think that God would want some sharp diplomat who knows how to communicate so well, he's a silver-tongued orator, to stand up and represent God's Word. Nope. God says, give me the ones that nobody wants to listen to because they think they're crazy, and I'll use them to speak my Word. Amen. That's right. Yeah, that's what he called the, the professionals, you brood of vipers. So this is just really good stuff, and I think there's. I hope that you take that with you tonight, because sometimes we think that I'm not qualified, I'm not good enough, I'm not like that person, and I can see why they're doing it, how God uses them, but that's not me. Um, did you know it's possible that somebody who looks like they know what they're doing doesn't really know what they're doing, and they're not really representing God? There are a lot of false teachers out here in the world. And there's a lot of believers that follow them. So who does God choose? The one in the room that you'd never choose. And that, isn't that true of Jesus? What did Isaiah say in chapter 53? He said, there was nothing about him that appealed to us. If you looked at him, you'd have thought, who's that guy? He didn't glow. He didn't have a shiny face. There was no aura. He wasn't good looking. Jesus was a commoner. Nobody would have gone out of their way to, 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 to talk to him. That is how God works, church. You're qualified. And I'm not trying to say that you're not good looking. I'm saying, <laughs> got to be careful here. I'm saying, stop trying to be something you're not. And stop trying to be like somebody else who's trying to be something they're not. Amen. Just be the person God's called you to be and do the things he's called you to do. Amen? All right, let's move on. So now God uses Jehu to bring judgment to the house of Omri. Verse 14, Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram is another name for Jehoram. So it, it, here in the text it says Joram, but in other versions and also in other places in this text it'll say Jehoram. And what it's speaking of is the current king, who is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. So whether you call him Joram or Jehoram, it doesn't really matter, okay? Here they're saying uh, Joram. Now Joram with all Israel had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. Now, let me just give you a little quick backdrop on that, okay? A little context. He actually had the southern kingdom, Judah king, came up and fought with Joram against the king of Syria. So now, Judah and Israel are aligned for this battle against the Syrian king. They go to battle. Joram is injured. It's not, a, it's not a death blow, but it's enough of an injury that he needed to retreat away from the battle, and he needed to convalesce for a while. So Jehu said, this is the guy who God has just anointed king to be the avenger. 
If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet, to meet them, and let him say, is it peace? Are you coming with peace? Now, the initial thought is, are you coming in peace? Will you provide peace? It's possible, one theologian said, that he's actually referring to the battle, thinking Jehu had been at the battle. Is there peace on the battlefield yet? Because he just came out of a battle that was still raging. Okay, so we don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we don't know for sure. So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. So, okay, here's the picture. The watchman sees Jehu. He doesn't know who it is. He just sees these men riding up. And so he tells Joram, the king, and Joram says, Send out a soldier on a horse and ask, Is it peace? Is there peace? And, of course, uh, Jehu's response is, what do you have to do with peace? Just get back here in line. In other words, there's no peace. And if you want, if you want to ride back, I'll kill you right now. But if you want, you can get, get in line with my troops. And, the, and he got in line with the troops. Okay? And the watchman reported saying the messenger reached him, but he is not coming back. And then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, he reached them, but he is not coming back. Now, you'd think that you'd start getting the hint. Something's not good here. And the drive, now listen to this. The watchman, here's what he saw. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Now, all of a sudden, Jehu is in a complete gallop with his soldiers on their horses, heading towards the city of Jezreel, where Joram is laid up, convalescing. So Jehoram is trying to convalesce in Jezreel. Now there's a situation that's really developed, okay? Um, Je or Joram wants to cut this off at the pass. He's like his mother and father. They were negotiators, but then after they would negotiate, they'd kill you. They always worked it to their advantage, and he's like his parents. He's going to go out and try to settle Jehu, okay? Verse 21, Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out. See, they're buddies. I said earlier that they went to battle together. I don't know that they battled together. I do know that they were in alliance together to go against Syria. Each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property. Okay, so Jehu's come forward. They've come out, they meet at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Wow. Basically, is there peace, Jehu? Bud, that hussy of a mom that you have? I'm going to tell you right now, God's getting ready to deal with her, and there's not going to be peace. Then Joram reigned about and fled, and immediately he knew this is not good. Let me get out of here. He's in his chariot, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. You talk about God dealing with judgment and dealing swiftly. Now, this is not Jezebel. This is her son, who is the king. He's no longer the king. Why? Because God just raised up a new king, and the new king just took out the old king under God's approval and met him at the property of Naboth and Jezreelite. I want to talk about this for a second. This is very interesting. You wouldn't necessarily notice it, on the surface, just reading the, the book. So let's, let's bring attention to it. Uh, this, this property of Naboth 
of Jezreel, the Jezreelite. This was the land that Ahab, when he was king, saw and said, I want that land. Naboth had a phenomenal garden on this land, and he wanted the garden. But Ahab didn't have the God-guided guts, and these weren't God-guided at all, but he didn't even have the guts to do anything. He was weak. He was a wimp. But his wife was not. So when she knew that her husband wanted that field, he was, he was coveting Naboth's field. She went out and had Naboth killed. That's the backstory, okay? And uh, so now Ahab has the field, just like he wanted. So now God will give them a taste of their own medicine on the same field that they killed Naboth. What did he come out and say? Jay, what did he say to Jehu, uh, the, uh, Joram, Joram? He said, is there peace? And it's like God saying, was there peace when your parents killed Naboth on this field? Was there peace? You know, I'm going to tell you right now, there's no peace today. I'm going to give you some of your own medicine. So while trying to escape on his chariot, Jehu drew the bow, took him out. Now, being a military commander, Jehu is an excellent marksman, no doubt. But it was God who guided that arrow. You just got to know that. He strengthened his arm, and he, he took him out. I w wouldn't you like to know what distance it was? Because he's in a chariot now. He turns and he takes off. Well, it takes at least a few seconds to get the arrow out and up and pulled. Who knows how far away he is? He could be 100 yards or longer, farther pulls back, and God strengthens him, and God guides that arrow like a missile, takes him out. Verse 25, Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth of Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by, in other words, take him where the garden is that he loved, or his father loved. For remember, when you and I rode by, side by side, Behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. Listen to this. Okay, verse 26. This is what God already said. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Wow. Talk about God having providence. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So that confirms that Jehu saw himself as a fulfiller of God's will in bringing judgment on the house of Ahab, the house, which was the dynasty of Omri. Now, verse 27, when, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, okay, remember now, he, he's a friend, he was a friend to, to Joram. He fled in the direction of Beth Hagan, and Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Eblium, and he fled to Megiddo and died there. Megiddo is the great battlefield for Armageddon in the very end. And Napoleon's the one who said when he saw the field of Megiddo, it's a valley, and it's a huge battlefield, and it's surrounded by hills. And when, when Napoleon literally saw it, and when he said, when he said when he saw it, he said, he said, this is the greatest battlefield on the earth. And sure enough, in the very end, Jesus is going to bring war against all who have rejected Christ. And that's the field. Well, that's the field that the king from Judah ran to, and he died there, okay, because he was, he was mortally wounded, uh, probably with the arrow. Now, um, his servants, verse 28, carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. They didn't do that out of respect for him. They did it out of respect for his family, his forefathers. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. So that's going back and telling you uh, that Ahaziah was the king of Judah. They always marked the kings of the northern kingdom by the chronology of the kings in the south. That's what that is. Um, so Jehu had no direct command or commission from God to bring judgment on the king of Judah. He didn't. God never said take out the king of Judah. However, uh, it's also worth noting that Ahaziah, the king of Judah, was a blood relative to Ahab. Ahab was his grandfather, and he is in cahoots with 
uh, the son of Ahab, who was the king. And so evidently, I mean, God dealt with him because of that. Okay? Verse 30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. So now he's come to Jezreel, and that's where Jezebel is locked up in some tower, living high and mighty. She's got her eunuchs all around there, living life big. And uh, she painted her, her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. That's interesting. The take on that from uh, the commentaries is that uh, Jezebel was one of the most beautiful women in all the Bible. It doesn't say she was the most, but she was a very beautiful woman when she was young. Now she's older. Her husband's gone. She's old, but she's still attractive. And one of the commentaries actually alluded to the fact that she probably was trying to dress herself up to somehow sweet talk Jehu. Um, but that's not the case. I, I don't agree with that because if you read further what, what's said, you'll, you'll understand. She looks out the window. She sees Jehu come through the gate, and she says to him, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. They turned on her. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to the cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. See, they didn't bury her because they respected her. It was because she came from royalty. And he said, See now, do this. But look, verse 135, But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet, and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Now that is, I love, okay, this is very interesting. It's almost like God's getting a little laugh out of this. He's saying, not only am I going to take her out completely, let the dogs have her, but what's left is going to be done, spread out on that garden that Naboth owned. <laughs> I love it. Only God could do that, you know. Uh, so let's go back. And, let me just say a couple things about this. Uh, verse 31, is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of, ma of your master? What is she talking about? She called Jehu Zimri after the man who assassinated King Basha of Israel. See, when Zimri was also the servant of Basha, he was a commander in his army, and he, and he killed him. Okay, she's saying, "Are you an assassinate? Are you also evil like Zimri?" Now, isn't it interesting how people who are actually the ones that are evil will will call others evil, and what they're doing is they're revealing their own identity but they're trying to throw it on somebody else. They project it on others. We've all had that happen to us, I'm sure. Even when you were in school, you know. Um, some kid started it. The teacher finally turns around, and you've kind of gotten involved in it later. And then that she looks at that boy because she knows he starts a lot of things, and she goes, "Did you? were you part of this? No, he, it's him. We always blame somebody else for our mess. That's what, Jez that's what Jezebel's doing. She's, and she specifically said, you're, you're a, an assassin. You're an assassin. You killed somebody. What are you talking about? You've killed more people than anybody can ever imagine. She's pushing off away from her. Keep it away from me. That is a tactic, by the way, of drug addicts and, uh, and alcoholics. They always project on others. No, I didn't say, I'm not going to repeat that because of the, but that, that is the truth. They, they, you go, you go to Dunklin, which is a, a year long residential program, strong Bible teaching. They put these men on the word of God and these men who were just piles of junk in the devil's junk pile, God takes and shines them up and make some jewels. But when you first get there as a drug addict, 
Maybe you didn't want to go. Maybe some you had to do it. Otherwise, they were going to put you in jail, whatever. I'll go. And you get there, and, and the intake interview, they say to you, tell me your story. And you start in on how rough it was as a boy growing up, and my dad was an alcoholic, and my mom was a prostitute, and nobody cared for me, and I didn't have food at the end of the day, and blah, 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 blah. And finally, the intake interviewer will say, you've had a rough life. Yes, I have. Well, you're not ready to get well because you did nothing but sit here and blame everybody else for your problem. So we're going to let you go. We're going to pray hard for you tonight that you'll come to the end of yourself before you lose your life. Because if you go back out there and pick up the drugs again, it will eventually take you. And when you're ready to say, I've got a problem, nobody else's problem but mine, then we'll help you. And their, 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 their rate of success is phenomenal. They have built all over the world, South Africa, Estonia, on the Baltic, all over the world, they've built cities of refuge where alcoholics and drug addicts come and get saved. And right there at Dunklin, out west of Stewart, in, close to Indian Town, you go into the cafeteria, and these men, there'll be 30, 40 of them in there, and they are growing in God. They literally come out of there with like a small, like a minor Bible degree. Many of them go into the ministry. Many of them go become missionaries. Many of them go and serve in different ministries. It's just amazing. But right there on the wall, big letters, it says, Jewels from the devil's junk pile. And below it are framed pictures, little pictures like this. The whole wall of the families of these men. Those families thought they lost their dad. I lost my husband. They never saw him coming back. No hope. And now, pictures, they're all together. Big smiles. God reclaimed them, rebuilt their lives. That's not Jezebel. And God dealt with her. See, a repentant heart, God will forgive. He's not going to withhold forgiveness. The Bible says He, he, he never changes in His, un, in his steadfast love. But you've got to repent. You've got to confess your sin. You've got to repent. It's just a powerful, powerful word. Um, so that's what she meant by that. She was trying to project. Um, verse 30, and she painted her eyes in the door, and we talked about that. Okay, here. So God fulfilled his prophecy regarding Jezebel. You, let me just give you the passage so you know where that prophecy was first given, okay? 1 Kings 21, 17 through 19. 1 Kings 21, 17 through 19. And then 1 Kings 21, verse 23 and 24. 17 and 9, through 19, 23 and 24. I wish I could say that, 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 you know, that Jehu remained faithful to God after all of this. He didn't. He fell like the other kings of the north into idol worship. And it didn't finish well for him. And that takes me to this statement. Most men and women... But I'm going to speak to men because I'm a man. Most men in the Bible don't finish well. Some of them start out on fire for the Lord. And they don't finish well. We've got a pastor in town. Started out on fire. He's not finishing well. And uh, if you go back in the 60s, You've heard the name Billy Graham, but you haven't heard of Bron Clifford and who's the other guy. There were three guys that were young men in their early 20s, and they were working for Campus uh, Youth for Christ or Campus Crusade for Christ. I forget which organization was around then. One of those two. No, no. And these three guys were young uh, evangelists. 
and young people, teenagers all over the, the country were getting saved. These guys were going out. They were filling auditoriums, and kids by the hundreds were being saved. Tremendous ministry. Of the three, the one that was least was Billy Graham. The other two far outshined him. And it was spoken of one of them, I think it was Bron Clifford, it was spoken that this is the future, this will be a future great leader of our nation for God. Well, he later in life lost, left, left his wife, left his family, became an alcoholic, and he died and didn't even have enough money for a graveside. Some pastors who knew him when he was young, out of sympathy, provided the funds to have him buried. The other guy went into uh, radio business, completely denied the faith later in life, and had his life, you know, lived out his life as a, as a radio broadcaster. Only Billy Graham, out of the three, only Billy Graham finished strong. This is the way it is. I hope we can take what we're hearing tonight from the Word of God. Jehu, this man who knew God raised him up, who he saw God use mightily, yet Jehu turned his eyes away from the Lord later and fell into the same sins of the people that God used him to avenge the innocent. It can happen. We have to stay in the Word. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus at all times. Otherwise, this life is cruel. This world is cruel, and it can harden you, and it can turn you away from the Lord. Don't let that happen. Stay in the Word. Let the Word of God wash over you like, like soap in, dirty, you know, in a dirty body. Let God just wash over you and cleanse you each and every day. Amen? All right. Hey, any, any thoughts or any, any questions that you have about this chapter before we close? Anything at all? Okay, well, let's close with prayer and give thanks to the Lord for this wonderful opportunity tonight to, uh, to be here together. Brother Dietrich, would you pray and close us tonight?